Hi, my name is John Davidson from Trenitalia. And as some of you might know, over the last 12 months, we've run a really fascinating proof of concept program called Futuro. Futuro took a small number of the people who we think are potential future leaders that work in our companies, and we took them away from the day job, gave them problem-solving frameworks, issues to think through, and left the rest of it down to that group of people to problem-solve and agree amongst themselves taking responsibility as a group and having to balance the different priorities of different elements of the rail sector. We also tried to ensure it was a really safe place where you could make mistakes and get the hang of these new ideas before you really need them. We went over to Italy to see our partners Shijaro, and Shijaro are one of the world's leading industrial design houses. They work with clients from all across industry to make things that people want to use. And we've talked to them about some of the philosophy that they have that maybe UK Rail would benefit from. One of the big questions we gave the group was what should the future of commuter rail look like now the world has changed so much? And over the last week, we had a conference sit down and we filmed it for you so you can hear what ideas the group have and also hear from a couple of other speakers. Callum Swanston, who's a future leader that works uh, elsewhere in the industry, tells us a lot about the data sources that are available. You'll also hear a little bit from me about the wider trends in society and some of the underlying behavioral science behind them. So, new direction from the Futuro team, some of the trends and underlying science from me, and the ways to quantify it and understand what's going on from Callum. Hopefully, it'll make for an interesting watch. Now, before we go any further, I want to introduce the idea of culture shock, because that's what the industry has gone through over the last few years. Now, this is really easy, um, but please play along with me um, for just a minute or so. I want you to close your eyes and think about going home from the office and having to pick up uh, a pint of milk. So I bet you know exactly which supermarket you'd go to. I bet you know what milk you would buy and where it would be in the supermarket. You wouldn't have to think about the route, and then I think you would know exactly where to go to the checkout, and you'd know whether you'd be going to a self-service checkout or to a member of staff. You wouldn't have to think a thing about it. In fact, it's almost sort of brain on neutral time that you can use to rest from all the other pressures of life. Now, you can open your eyes, I'd like you to come with me to Guangzhou in China and try and do the same thing. You're going to have to navigate a complicated Chinese bus network, which, by the way, uh, you won't be able to use your Western credit card to pay on and which won't accept cash and which only has information on WeChat and that's in Chinese. You'll then have to decide whether the shop that you're going into is in fact a supermarket because it could be a, some different type of store because you can't read the writing. When you get into the store, you're going to have to hunt around and find where the dairy section is. Then when you find the dairy section, you're going to find that actually it's not in fridges and you're going to have to look at the bottles and go, is this adult milk? Is this milk? What is it? I get from the green and the blue and the red, it's probably milk, but is this what I should be buying? You're then going to have to go to the checkout. You're then going to have the same problem paying because you won't be able to do it with your Western credit card. They won't want to take cash.
Now, I don't know how many of you have lived overseas or maybe originally were from overseas and now are based in the UK. But if you've lived and worked in a country other than your home nation, you'll realise that these sort of culture shocks happen all the time and they make life really hard. And all the shorthand in life that you've got to help get by suddenly gets thrown out the window and you have to start again. That's what we've seen in rail. So the challenge that we've set the guys is to say not only how do we solve problems that have already taken place with this giant culture shift with society making working from home a norm and not an exception. We need to remember, though, that that is going to evolve way into the future. We need to position ourselves not as a victim, but as a leader of future change. So I hope you'll find it interesting and uh, thank you for watching. I'll be moderating today's conversation and from the Futuro team we have James Donnelly, C2C's Diagramming and Planning Manager, Jessica Hall who takes the reins of C2C's Learning and Development and Matthew Ives, C2C's Head of Finance, P&L, Forecasting and Budgeting. We'll also be joined by guest speaker Callum Swanston who's an expert in rail demand forecasting. Also in the conversation we have senior leaders Ettore Camilli Chief Financial and Corporate Officer, who's joined us from Rome, Philip Lini, Finance and IT Director for C2C, David Franklin, Insight and Innovation Manager for Avanti West Coast and GBRTT, and Ben Martin, C2C's Asset and Property Director. We also welcome Giuliano Pellella, who is the Innovation and Technology Director, and Ali Andreas Camas, who is the Key Account Manager. I hope you enjoy. I guess the kind of you know question we started off with was you know how should CBC act in a kind of more discretionary, trouble-focused market? I mean, how did you guys find using this uh, model? So this comes from Bain. It's basically about um, how they recommend companies look at turning around things. What was your? Did you find it useful? A distraction or? I think it was, a, it was useful to have it from a different perspective. I think you know, it was looking at it from your own particular viewpoint. It makes you very much picture everything at that high level and then work your way down. Um, so yeah, I thought it was quite a useful way to do it. We were as well to be able to think about, like we said, the must-win battles. What do we, what do we need to overcome? And then what initiatives do we need to put in place to get us there? And like we said, the enablers, what is going to support us to move that forward? And then the foundation is thinking about what we already have, the resources that we have to be able to achieve it. So it's a good way to look at it. Yeah. How did you find it, James? Yeah, I thought it was a process. It made it easier to structure what we were kind of saying. I think it shows through the slides uh, that we have from the point to point of view. And James, for you, so I mean, in terms of the background to today, um, how would you describe the current situation? What was your, your analysis of where we're at right now? So, obviously, um, what CTC is seeing is quite similar to what's being seen nationally, um, but we are very much heavy pre COVID, heavy to railway, um, and some of the graphs that you can see up. So the one on top shows how um, we have seen a reduction 
obviously, in the COVID period, but we aren't getting to those same level of total chance post COVID as well. And then similarly, um, the nationwide picture for season ticket travel has declined massively um, since COVID. Um, and you can see it on the graph there. Uh, so the section highlighted in uh, blue. So um, whereas before, that was making up a major chunk of our um, of the nationwide kind of thing, green ground travel behaviour. Now that isn't the case, so it's this comes back to that question: How do we fill that gap? And that's what our next slide's going to discuss. Cool. Um, so I mean, I guess it's the final one for you, Matt. So what does all that mean in pensions and pimps? Yeah. So I mean, when putting this together, I thought of the idea of showing the underlying profitability, but I thought actually very useful first of all to show the swing from the DFT's viewpoint. So previously, before COVID, we were paying about seventy million in. Treasury, uh, it's obviously switched massively. So, uh, 20, uh, 20 to 21, you can see the big 110k, uh, 110, 110 million uh, of subsidy <laughs> funding that was needed. And we're getting back to about 60. Um, and, but ultimately, the aim is to get that as close to zero as possible. And that's the whole concept of net zero, which um, CDC is looking to focus on. But um, I thought that was really key to highlight because it really shows the pressures, not just from the owning group, obviously we've got the responsibility to make a profit, but from the DFT's viewpoint, they want that subsidy down to zero as quick as possible. So uh, she just highlights the problem. Just remind me, how much were, what was the operational profit before subsidy um, in the old days? So I think our, our last uh, clean set of accounts before COVID was actually an underlying, uh, well, we, we made a loss of about 20, 20 or 30 million. Yeah, it was about 20 or 30 million. Um, we were struggling before. Uh, the franchise assumed a much higher rate of revenue growth than actually happened. Um, so, yeah, not not great, um, which is why I wanted to focus more on the like but I guess, you know, so what I'm sort of trying to get yeah. around a bit is um, the trading position, so in terms of income. So that that's, I guess, what a, a massive drop. So we've got 120 million difference. Uh, I'm just trying to get, is that the trade 120 million, how does that quite balance out between... Um, as I recall, before we made an underlying profit, we then had to pay too much subsidy, and that's what took us into loss. Yeah, that's it. So on that last year, we made a thirty million loss. So you removed the subsidy, yeah, uh, the franchise premium, and yeah, technically about thirty million. Yeah, um, but obviously need to pay to have the franchise in the first place. Yeah. Okay. Um, Muslim battles. Is that one for you, Jess? Yes, so what do we need to achieve in order to be sustainable? We need to tie in with the net zero strategy. We also need to start thinking about how we generate revenue but also being cost effective. But it's really important to think about the mentality shift. We're, we want to build revenue, we're not cost cutting anymore, but we still need to be cost efficient and make sure we're doing what we should be with our money whilst also retaining the contract that we have. So there's quite a few challenges in that. Generating revenue, B 
being cost efficient, but also not sticking in that we must cut costs, we must cut costs, because if we're going to build anything and we're going to make profit, we need to be not focusing on cost cutting, it needs to be how are we going to generate revenue. So we're trying to think about what we need to do to be able to do that. In a nutshell. So I guess, you know, so over the next year, two or three years, I'll kind of put this out to all three of you, but you know, what, what are the kind of things we need to actually do practically over the next couple of years? Because it feels to me this is not something that's going to be fixed all of a sudden, but this is a, a sort of 10-year um, timescale that we're thinking of. Yeah, so I, I mean, I don't propose to focus too much on this slide in detail at the moment, because actually a lot of this comes up again later on in the pack, but at a high level, it's kind of what Jess just said, it's about taking the, the funding that we do have and making sure we're investing as smartly as possible um, and then also try and focus on those more long-term scenarios. So you can see here, just looking at a few of them, it's how do we attract new customers, um, speak that share from GA, got the new housing developments, um, we'll touch on it again a bit later on, but how do you get people to actually forego their cars and actually hop on the train? Um, so it's things like that, but uh, yeah, so... Well, James, anything? James, Jess, and Ed, from you guys? Yeah, yeah I think um, building on mainly from the last slide, so it is a lot about slashing costs and is trying to build up revenue. And when we are looking at uh, reducing costs, it's mainly through efficiency, so some of the latter things, so looking at our relationships with our partners and also um, making sure that we get effective use of what we've got in our stations, in our property, etc. Um, ensuring we're investing in our workforce so that they have the skills to be able to deliver some of this stuff. Yeah. Having that commercial mindset is really important. We need to be bringing people into the business or at least teaching them, training them in, in how to deliver this. What does net zero look like for people that are already here and what does it look for for people that will be joining us because we're all going to be going on this journey together. It's not up to C2C to build this. It's the people that are with us, right? So it's important that they're on, they understand it and not only understand it, but they're invested in it as well. So what can we do? What knowledge, skills can we give those individuals to kind of take us along that journey? So that's something that needs to be in the next couple of years in terms of how we want it to live life. Just to kind of follow on from that, because I think you've got the advantage of being quite fresh to rail. How do you perceive people's level of skill in that area right now? I know you've got stuff to talk about later on, but what's your kind of walking into walking in the door? What's your first impressions? First impressions are is the real cost cutting mindset and approach, because obviously we've come out of COVID, so everyone is worried about money, of course. So it's getting out of that mindset. So the skill base we've got is is more based around everyone's quite lean, they're in their teams, they're focused on their teams and they're really technical about what they do. So they know their jobs and they know their job roles. But that's sort of collaborative um, piece where people are coming together and we've got projects and project management team, for example, we're not quite there yet. So it's about what do we need to do to drive this forward as a collective um, using the technical skills of people so from my standpoint, I've seen it as really good within people's individual fields, but coming together, that's something that we really need to need to work on and we're kind of beating towards the same drum 
as opposed to everyone getting on with their individual skill set that they've got within their goals. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I've noticed so far. Does that kind of chime true with you, though? Because I know you've done a lot of work in the bank team, GBR team, team trying to get around that silo mindset. Um, yes, and as much as you know, a large complex business with different, in particular, large geographic distribution, yes, can create funds in itself. Um, it certainly was it's historically really critical to kind of bring that together the organizational culture. I don't think many of you want to touch on to really closely relate to that. So, I mean, I guess looking slightly further ahead with the 10 year aspirations, I know if any of you guys want to particularly lead on this, but what would you recommend a 10 year aspiration be for the community rail? We need to focus on different types of commuters. We're knowing now that people aren't going in five days a week and it's potentially not going to be going back that way anymore. What, uh, how are we going to target those people that are going in for leisure? They're going on the same days because they've got things going on in the evening and they want to come into the office and then they've got plans in the evening. How are we going to target those? Um, and the ones that are working away from London They've moved to Essex, for example, because it's cheap living, but they do work in London. Um, what are we going to be doing to support those individuals to come back into work, spend more time in the office? Um, yeah. And then um, targeted thousands of veterans as well. So, obviously, uh, we are bringing money as long as they want to touch on it, get that effort. We have got major housing. So it's getting those customers um, as early as possible and nurturing them into um, customers that are going to want us to use us for leisure as well as commuter and operating. Okay, just to build on that, it's actually not on there, but I think it's also acknowledging actually only so much we can do. So, like uh, working from home, for instance, we can try and promote people to come back to the office. We're not going to be the ultimate decider of that, but people have gotten used to working from home, people have developed new ways of uh, having that proper balance. So it's tr trying to be open to, right, obviously we want to promote it and try and get people back, but what other options do we have? Um, so I guess that's kind of growing the market, so we've got more people travelling less often, uh, and that's where the kind of property move to Essex thing comes in. It does just strike me, how you just moved to Essex. Yeah, I've been smiling for this whole presentation. Yes. Moved from northwest London to South Essex about four months ago. Yeah. <laughs> what do you reckon would attract more people in northwest London to move to Essex? Huge market. Yeah. <laughs> but there's definitely a huge growing market in people moving outside of London, specifically northwest, but moving out of London into Essex. Yeah. You know, especially after COVID, it's commuting more people less frequently, as you've said, which means that people are happy to be commuting a little farther. South Essex isn't, you know, a huge increase in time. If you're used to taking a, a tube or a ten link from, you know, twenty to forty minutes per hour, move to like an hour, an hour and a half commute. So actually that bad if you're doing it less often. Um, and at least from a very biased personal experience with friends and family based in Essex has shown that a lot of people have made that move either further into Essex, further south and further east, or from London to Essex. Um, because there's an expectation that you be in the office less, you can afford a slightly higher cost of commute um, and you know, a slightly longer journey. There's that kind of growing the market piece. So I know uh, one of the groups that uh, you guys identified, I think it was Caroline, uh, who can't be here today, 
uh, was around the supercommuter trend. So I don't know if any of you guys would like to introduce us to the supercommuter trend. So it means uh, the commuters are slightly further out, um, or where they're working from, I think so it's a longer commute, less often, um, and it's that flexibility that they've got from COVID um, that's allowing them to um, really take a benefit out of it. Um, and I guess the question is, so this is one of the things that we've raised because it could be that actually we do see a rise in conventional commutes coming back, but there's a good chance that we might not, and it will be more of these commuters that will be starting to see. So uh, we thought it was important to mention it and uh, dig into it a bit We need to consider how we target these people because they may only be coming in two days a week in the office or one week a month. What are we going to be doing long term, advertising wise or whatever that might be, to keep them in London, get them coming back to London more often? That's an important question. Do you think that, I mean, I guess this route's got nice beaches, it's got sunniest place in Britain, things like that. I mean, do you actually, super cute to that kind of sounds quite attractive. I come down to the on sea, I go to Chalkwell, do whatever else you want. But I don't get a feeling that most people out there have any idea that those options exist. And there's, the perception I get is that South Essex is seen as quite a negative place to go. Is, is that a fair, fair thing to, to say? Well, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I think it's because we do have places on our route, but we've always targeted either you go to the city or you go to South End. Actually, it's targeting these other places on the route as well. Um, rather than specifically mention South End, which is Lee, which is quite yeah, a nice place, right? Yeah. Um, and so there are options to, to look at to not just sell ourselves on the end to end point. So, so less South End, more Lee, more Chalkwell, more, more places like that. Okay. Um, recreational commuters, I think you've spoken a little bit about this already. Um, I don't know if you guys want to take us through some, some more of the stuff you found out about these guys. We're just keeping them in London. So what you know, businesses we can partner with, how are we going to get people staying in London, knowing they can do other things if they are coming into London so they're spending more time here? Um, yeah, I don't know if anyone wants to pick up any other points on that one. I think a lot of people probably have got that mentality in their hands. Whereas, whereas you come into work just because you were seeing other people within your teams or um, colleagues, um, some new kind of thing as well. Now, what we're seeing is that actually there's a good chance that you won't have those colleagues in, you won't be having those team discussions. So, that's why the rec commute is even more important, I think. So, um, having those recreation activities that is a real driver now for people coming into the office kind of thing to go out of work, <laughs> go, go out of the office kind of thing at the end of the day. Um, and, like Jess is saying, I think the main thing that we can do is really promote partners and stuff. Um, that kind of after work drinks um, atmosphere and then saying, yeah, you can get the train home now, not going to have to worry about uh, getting breathalyzed or <laughs> <laughs> um, not, not going to have to worry about driving yourself. I think it's a relaxing journey getting back to a nice place on the coast or 
um, and new housing development kind of thing on our green, and that's what we should be selling. So I guess what we're saying is that you can less frequent travel, grow the market, people that were travelling every day, recreational communities, tempt them in with, uh, you know, fun things after work, and then identify people who could be super commuters and try and draw them out of London with the nice things on the route that don't necessarily get spoken about too much. And it was interesting, James, because I know uh, you were talking about housing trends there. Um, so what is the kind of picture that we've got on the route for, for housing trends? So I think primarily, um, I'd say our biggest break there is probably in Dagenham down to Dagenham, kind of that flat block around there, so Green Park. And we've also got the old full factory, so they're massive sites um, that are going to um, attract a lot more um, commuters there, just new demand. And we've also got other developments, so Hazelden, um, there's a lot of talk around there, so some developments outside Hazelden, but also potentially building on the city centre as well. And this is one of the things that we discussed, I think, when we were, um, like, kind of thing, just uh, the six plus was that um, this station kind of thing, so the closer that you can put high-density housing near the stations, um, the more demand that you can track them onto our services. Uh, obviously, you don't have a lot of control with that, but having those conversations where we've got those relationships with councils and stuff, and, and we can really sell kind of thing, the benefits of our group, and that will all like bring them. Um, how do you start to partner with these developers? Mm -hmm. So you actually get them there early and actually then, I don't know, you, when they get their new flight pack and it says welcome to their home, it's like, well, go and travel C to C as a smart card, it's already loaded up for £10 and now you can start to use it. It's, it's those sort of ideas that help just to drive people to use the train a bit more. I mean, Ben, I'm going to unfairly jump on you for a second, but you've, you're kind of, I guess in this room that the person's got the most experience of property and, and uh, real estate and developing. How would you, off the top of your head, go about trying to support these guys? So, you know, if we, we wanted South End on Sea Fire from Basildon to open up more land to build new stations, if you wanted to encourage um, property companies to build here and not elsewhere, wanted to kind of change the perception of the area, um, what do you think would be good avenues to explore. I think the principal one for me is it's they're all looking for well, what's the value add. Why do I want to go and speak to C to C over a bus company, over um, GA or anybody effectively? So I think we need to very quickly think about what the proposition is that we're going to take to prospective developers mm -hmm. and say um, if you partner with us we will increase the, the value of that particular unit by five percent, ten percent, whatever it is, because if you think about the price of a of a house and you can demonstrate that you can increase the price of the house because of the proximity, the quality of the train service um, into London or also out of London, then there's different things that they can do. And I think some of it's factored in, but there's probably more we can do to um, make people aware of that. I think the other thing is, is when you're looking at where you're going to live, you're looking at what experiences are around that area. So I don't think as a business we've ever gone out and looked at all the local businesses within our catchment area and say, well, who provides experiences? What are the different types of experiences? How do we unlock and market with them and to them about how we can better move people to those 
um, attractions. Now, we've always focused on the big one down at Southend, um, but there's lots of other small, um, quite niche, probably quite exciting, particularly when you start looking at those super commuters who are looking for experience-based activities. We're probably missing a big trick there. Um, it might take a little bit more legwork, but actually once you've unlocked it, I think you'll get a lot of repeat business and also the ability to track new people into the area. So again, your yield per ticket will go up as a result of that. So I think there's two things. One is around what is our value proposition to them in terms of developers, but secondly, again, the, the wider community in which we serve, how do we start to tap into that? Because again, there is more than, than Venture Island on the street. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I guess it goes back to what the railway originally was, which was uh, a way of linking uh, you know, London and having a nice house by the sea. Um, overall vision. Um, I think you guys. Well, I mean, this manager summarises the last few slides really, so it's sort of blind leisure. So it's not just South End. You can see in the top there. It's just this sort of overview of all the different areas. But it's exactly that. It's, it's a line, not not just two places. Um, employment, recognising uh, all the key areas we've got, City of London, Cary Wharf, and the docks, um, and the gateway to other areas. And then as James has sort of spoke about, all the opportunities on housing. So, it's, uh, yeah, just a bit of a summary, really, but there's clearly a lot that we that we do have. And I guess um, we can get people to move here and things. Let's say we do that. We still have to get them to, to use the CTC or commuter rail um, product and I think you guys looked a bit at the, the competition and uh, sort of where we stand compared to them. Um, I don't know if you guys want to start to sort of talk us through this. Yeah, so I mean, sort of touching this a bit already, but cars, so people, especially since COVID, you've got, I don't know, some people are still conscious, and, well, some people are much more conscious about uh, using public transport, so we tend to use cars, but even then it's just People see it as easier to be in a car. Car ownership um, has gone up. Um, so it's how do we attract those people to uh, out of the car into the trains at a time where cost of living is higher. Actually, the train may make more sense in a lot of cases rather than pay for your parking um, as well. So um, there's how do we do that? The other railroad operators, we've got the uh, obviously GA. Um, yeah, they've done all their, their uh, development and their stations, they've got their new fleet. So it's how do we also still challenge? Because um, I, I know when I was growing up, it used to be obviously C trains were so much nicer than GAs, um, and it's making sure that we can still um, still say that. Um, and then we've also got the challenge from Elizabeth Flying and um, all the other connections that we've got there. And then we've already spoken about work from, uh, from home as well. So it's uh, trying to encourage people to still. Come in while we can, but realizing there's only so much we can actually do with that. Maybe curious one looking at HS2. Do, is there, I know you're quite fresh to the organization, pattern, but is there kind of a perception about uh, the strengths and weaknesses of rail against other competition that's, that they've got in their kind of outlook, or is it a bit more macroeconomic than that? It's quite heavily macroeconomic, but normal shift is a really important part of the, the high speed through business case. I mean, you've obviously got limited domestic air competition this season in Glasgow, which makes part of it, and that has a really big impact on thinking about carbon neutrality and pursuing net zero. But high risk is the main competition when we're trying to um, kind of draw people to get into shift modes away from uh, kind of car towards rail. 
it's less of a, a kind of core focus of the SB2 business case because a lot of the core markets, you know, London, Birmingham, London, Manchester, whatever still happen, you know, uh, are traditionally ones that have a, a higher rail motor share. I don't know any, any stats, but from a, again, very biased <laughs> South Essex commuter perspective, I'd expect that the, the kind of opportunity for global capture away from car, from a much higher base. Uh, like population using car is probably higher for CTC than it would be for traditionally well focused markets like in Birmingham and Manchester. So there's opportunities there to actually come a little bit away from high speed too. Yeah. It just kind of feel like this broader carbon neutrality argument around those that this could fall into as well to try and capture. Um, I, I know you guys also did a bit of work around what you think, uh, how you think the CDC or, or the community world is better than the other modes. Mm-hmm. So we're just cantering through those points. We need to play to our key strengths, I think, and depending on how we choose to do that in terms of advertising again, for example, I always go back to that because I'm trying to think of the consumer. I'm thinking of how the customer will notice why they should be travelling for C2C. So you've got the car journey, it's not as potentially relaxing because you're not concentrating on driving, for example. Um, it does work out cheaper than car ownership and we can play that, we, we can um, communicate that, more environmentally friendly, so we're capturing that market there as well. Other road operators, we do know C2C is quite cheap in terms of, against GA, for example, and having to go, if you want to go somewhere else, you have to go on multiple lines to get there and we've got a direct route into London. So playing on that as well, um, we are seen as really high performing. We are high performing compared to some other rail operating companies, so we need to play to that. And also working from home, we do know working from home is lovely, but being able to come in and socialise, collaborate, be with stakeholders, go and see friends after work, better access to certain support networks, we should be tapping in on all of those things that make us great instead of focusing on, on you know, our where we may not be doing so well or, or, or our competition. Well, I mean, David, because this is an area where we've looked at for other things in the past, and I guess you must be looking at from a GBRTT perspective. I mean, have you got a sense for what the, what the wider strengths of commuter rail are perceived as from, from your work with GBRTT and others? Well, I think we was thinking of what, what we are thinking of. It's, it's interesting that everything you've described as an assumption headroom. And you talked about it across different uh, across different groups, and it's useful to understand um, what you think the scale of that headroom is. So, for example, when you're looking at competing against car, do you have an understanding of you know, what are the flows that cars are competing with you on, and in what kind of volume? And when you're talking about the kind of strategy you might have for moving people away from working from home, do you know the kind of organisations that they are? Trying to go to, and that might not need you to think about for partnerships, for example, um, and potential opportunities. Yeah, I think the answer to is no, exactly. But yeah, that's exactly the sort of thing we're doing to find out. Tune in later, and, and Callum will keep us yes. things in mind. Can I ask a, a question on? people's perception of cost um, of train travel versus cars because I think there is a general perception um, if you were to go and survey most commuters that, that trains are expensive. Um, similarly, that operating a railway is high risk. 
So what are we doing to, to combat those two within this process? Because if there's a, a general belief when you actually start stacking up the economics of this, that it's cheaper when you look at the whole life cost of owning a car versus jumping on a train and the flexibility of that. Have we done that and have we raised people's awareness to this? Because I think my perception is, is and again, I work for a train company, they are expensive, particularly for doing long-distance commuting relative to jumping in the car. But surely if we're going to try and start going after car ownership and car usage, we've got to start to change the narrative around the cost of the railways and, more importantly, travelling on the railways. I think it's a really fair point, and actually, like, the, the, the perception that rail is expensive, <clears throat> I imagine a lot of that still goes back to pre-Covid when everybody was having to buy their season tickets and you pay thousands and thousands off the front, right? But actually now, all, all you'll see from a lot of cases, especially if I talk to my friends, they'll see that £15 that goes out once a week and they'll actually go into the office. So actually, it probably is, car, uh, rail is more cheap, more, um, it's cheaper than cars nowadays. It's actually just getting that message across. Um, and also, it's just the element of you buy a car, I say you, you forget about it, you bought the car in the house, or you're going to never see your petrol on your own team and stuff like that. Well, you, your route to get is going to be, you'll be paying that each time. So, it's how do you manage that perception as well? As it seems, just going through one of those ways, in terms of understanding your, your customers and your geography, some sort of ways definitely do come very often with most kind of. Resource things like the end to end journey, things like the complexity of affairs, things like you know, the ease of travel, the experience during disruption. Are you clear what the kind of main barriers are to consideration or adoption of rail? Either by people who haven't been on rail before, but they've got to know how the people who haven't tried rail. And I think it's probably going to be made even simpler um, with the onset of the new um, payment mechanisms that we've got coming through at the moment because, again, you're no longer in doubt of how we've got the cheapest price because there is only one price. Mm -hmm. So actually there's a lot of good, positive things that, I mean, again, particularly for this route, that we, we could and should go back on and ask some of the obvious questions to try and knock down some of those barriers. Yeah, because the, the, the best price thing is quite interesting because C2C is quite good at that. The Pico will basically work out the cheapest price if you're on the web or the app. The staff are quite good at that as well. But we don't shout at it. We kind of do the John Lewis thing that John Lewis used to do. Uh, don't tell anyone. It's like it's a secret. And, and it's very strange. In terms of must-wins and specific, specific initiatives, if I can say it, um, uh, you, guys, you guys want to sort of capture through this slide. It's pretty comprehensive. So um, this is some of this maybe what we've done as a group, um, some ideas that we discuss, kind of thing. And this is very much a high-level mm -hmm. overview, but um, some of the stuff we're talking about is, I think it's already just been discussed here, is really, we've got some great things on our group, we're doing some great stuff, but sometimes we're not really shouting about it. Uh, so the first item on our list is the uh, marketing campaign. And looking at what we generated, so encouraging that travel, e.g., uh, two for one, so that's something that's already there. We've got that is something that if you went home and asked your family, like the things that you know about that, if not, then we're probably going to say no. Like, and uh, similarly, I know um, Kirsten, I think, mentioned it, so group travel as well on trains. So uh, when <coughs> I was younger, that was 
for a little while that was a really big thing like oh yeah if the channel is four or three we're going to get a discount price very much if I went home and asked I'm going to get the game about that now don't really like it now I don't know about that so it's really having those good things and then shouting about it and I think that's something really important that we need to do um, so business partnerships there um, we've talked about in quite a bit of detail but um, looking at what we can offer to companies and then what can they offer us in return so um, we are lucky that we have got our service company and we can offer some discount tickets in some instances and um, so looking at what we can provide to them in that respect um, again we mentioned about strong relationships with local authorities and partnerships with local businesses our previous slides, new developments um, I think again so selling of what is on our route so uh, that we do through information packs so again going back to what Matt was saying earlier so one of the ideas we came up with is when um, we've got new developments on route so putting out a, a pack kind of thing for when they're buying the house kind of thing about the C2C route so where can you go on our route to um, have leisure experiences kind of thing uh, with uh, can you the main employment areas so where's good for business etc uh, where's the local amenities and then maybe looking at how you provide a discounted ticket to help attract people onto our route um, and then get them endorsed as a customer and allow them to keep traveling for lots of the future um, so then the other thing we talked about was uh, integrated travel, so this has just been commented on, but um, one of the things we know is that if you are travelling by rail, unless you are very, very lucky, the chances are that you're going to have to make an additional journey to get to the station. So it's making sure that when someone leaves their house, um, they've got easy information and they can easily work out how much that journey is costing them from one end to the other. Um, there's obviously lots of different levels to that, so you can go fully integrated. But sometimes, I know for a lot of people, it might just be looking at Google Maps, being able to plan that journey from A to B at the moment. How do we get that more integrated on the C to C side? So when people come and use us, they can plan a journey from A to B from the front door to where they want to go. Um, so it's really quite conceptual what we're talking about, uh, but that was the kind of stuff that we were discussing on that slide. Uh, obviously we've got lots of schools on our routes, um, and we already do quite a bit around um, school trips and group travel during the summer, um, but it's making sure that we get good value again, promoting uh, what we can provide, and not just saying in the summer, you're going to go from London the beach kind of thing. It's realising that this route has got a lot more to offer than that um, and really allowing people to see that. Um, so I think that's cool. Um, and I guess, you know, what, what do we actually need to do all of those things as an industry? I think I'll throw that to the two three guys. So. Yeah, I mean, this slide is just kind of a few high level things down. I mean, there's obviously loads that you need yeah. a lot to, to get all this done, but I think the four real key ones that we thought were 
um, how the existing passenger market, how we actually um, look to uh, build that further. So especially the last few years since COVID, the government has very much been a case of looking at like efficiencies, limited investment in marketing, things like that. But actually, especially with the revenue mechanism now, it's actually how, how we drive that revenue up, how we get people to come back. Um, and then similarly on the new passenger market as well, but as we've mentioned, engaging with um, local developers, councils, um, things like that. Uh, and then non-passenger revenue streams, so um, what we mentioned about targeting um, uh, developers, we can make them do something there. Um, can we turn some of our old station assets into future revenue streams? Can we, I don't know, we've got a train simulator, can we can we uh, lease the simulator out for a day for some people who really want to learn how to drive train? It's looking for things outside the box there. Um, and then just to highlight the genuine efficiencies, we're already quite well in business um, financially. Um, so there's not that many that we can make. There may still be some, but it's about targeting the right efficiencies. But more, more, it's not just cost cutting, it's actually can we do that cheaper but using a new set of technology that will actually give us more power going forward. Cool, I guess the question what do we actually need in terms of people and skills to deliver those sorts of things and how, how close is it to, to what we have now? Yeah, so I've kind of touched on this already, really important for everyone across the business to be commercially minded. We see it as sitting with the commercial team when actually every department has a responsibility to to have a commercial mindset, even in HR we need to think about how we're driving revenue, that's a really hard thing for people in different teams to understand, but it's about us as a business and, and my job essentially is training people, giving people that knowledge and that skill set to understand these things in terms that they understand for their teams. So that forward thinking and how can we bring people into the business that are like that I'm obviously always thinking about apprenticeships, universities, tackling, targeting schools, because they are our future workforce. It's not just who we've got here today. It's more about bringing people into the business that um, are on apprenticeships, for example, and they have a certain skill set. And behind all of that is the culture that we have around that commercial acumen as well. We need to be, as part of our values and our culture and our mission and everything we're driving forward, commercial the, the commercial aspect of it is really really important it's great to have all the lovely values but if we're not training and, and supporting people across the business to think in that mindset no one is going to contribute in a way that the commercial team for example would because they are constantly trying to drive and, and build revenue other teams may not be thinking about that consistently so it is kind of how do we drive that forward um, some ways to have a look at that and to think about that is the customer satisfaction. What are our customers doing? We've got so much data potentially coming in that we, we should be feeding off us. What do our customers think? Try and find out those patterns and, and, and kind of delve into that a little bit more and our employee data as well. How do, how do people that work for us feel and behave and what can we learn from that? Um, processes, what do we need to do? We kind of need a which we're already doing, transformation program, what are we going to put in place, certain project management teams uh, to, to drive that forward. Um, yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell. Can I ask a question? Um, all of that is very sensible, but what data are we missing? 
because that's all about our existing commuters. What can we know about the people that don't commute with us? How are we going to get them to convert to the railway from the car? What, what new data do we need to get? Well, stick around to the final to the final presentation. You might find yeah. out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, I mean, I think so. I've got one on the time. I know some guys have got to run uh, fairly soon, but I think what what I'm hearing from that is that yes, we have lost great chunk of the market. We can do things with a recreational commute that almost almost. I guess advertising going to work as a leisure activity uh, in, in a weird way, um, but there's trends out there with uh, you know, the super commuter that, that lend themselves to places like South Essex, and to do that, we need to have a good consciousness about what value that we bring to it, um, and why South Essex and people's lifestyles were they to go there, and then we need to go out with those sort of connections to to help promote. Um, Increasing the housing stock on the groups. To do all of that was quite a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of people and skills. Is that fair or something? Cool. Okay, well, look, there were supposed to be six of you. That's the first session over. There's two more sessions. Um, there's supposed to be six people presenting that, so I think the guys have done a fantastic job um, covering for their, their three uh, MIA colleagues. So I just want to say thanks and give a quick round of applause to.